episode number three of the world-famous Charting the Territories podcast. I'm Al Getz, and along with me, as always, hasn't missed an episode yet, is John Boucher. How are you doing, John? Hello, Al. How's it going? Happy August, episode three, August. Yeah, it's August. We have uh, survived uh, most of these summer months. Well, I guess technically we're about halfway through summer at this point. Uh, I don't, you know, I know you guys have been getting some hellacious, uh, precipitation among other things in the greater New York area. Yeah, lots of, lots of wind, wind, rain, wind and rain, yes. wind and rain. uh, no earth and no fire though. I guess, no. we'll, I guess that will come in September. Yes. Ah, yeah, yes, see what I did there. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, <laughs> anyway, enough of this <laughs> chit chat. Uh, this month we are going to focus on. The Leroy McGurk Wrestling Territory in the uh, second half of 1961. So we're going way back in time. We're going to focus mostly on the fourth quarter, but we do need to set the table by discussing the third quarter uh, because there was a big change in the geographical bounds of Leroy's territory. We're also going to dip into our mailbag and do a little Q&A. This is the third episode Technically, the second episode was recorded before the first episode was released, so we didn't have a chance to get feedback on episode one and address it in episode two. So at this point, we're addressing feedback from the first two episodes, and man, oh man, did a lot of people speak out and tell me how badly I am butchered the pronunciation of one particular town in Louisiana. The <laughs> town spelled H-O-U-M-A is pronounced Homa. Not Huma, as I was saying constantly throughout episodes one and two, but Homa. Homa, as in Dwight Evans won the game with a three-run Homa. You've been hanging out with John McAdam way too much, (laughs) John, with this Boston (laughs) accent. All right. Um, But yes, so I I apologize to anyone who I offended. I also, there's some... uh, uh, another town that I'm not quite getting right. So I'll ask you, John. The town spelled L A F A Y E T T E. How do you pronounce that? Easy. It's a street in Lower Manhattan, Lafayette Street. Lafayette Street. I think I was saying Lafayette, um, but yes, it's Lafayette. Not. Oh. And I, I've also read somewhere that some people might even pronounce it Lafitte. Interesting. But, I always uh, I assumed. Uh, the way you're pronouncing it was was correct. I also assumed that it's uh these are, these are these are tricky because like you know most of the time we're we're reading these occasionally you hear them on the when you watch a mid south show that has the local promos in but a lot of the times you're not getting those so a lot of these towns you're used to seeing them in print and not not related them to the to how they sound right and actually a while back I was corrected on a, a mispronunciation I made on the uh, between the sheets podcast uh, with the town spelled l o r a n g e r I was just looking at it and and not without having ever heard it assumed it was loranger and Chris Zellner's like no 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 it's loranger 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 uh, not loranger uh, okay. I, don't, I don't think, uh, but definitely not Loranger. Uh, so, Homa, not Huma. Lafayette, not Lafayette or Lafitte. Also, Chalmet. I think I got that one a little wrong too. Chalmet, not Chalmet or Chalmet, but Chalmet. Um, and uh, we haven't had any shows yet coming from Thibodeau, so hopefully I got that <laughs> one right. But as always, any mispronunciations, we are open to uh, corrections. Uh, 
it's also possible there there might be some obscure wrestler's name that we pronounce wrong. Uh, right. Again, we're doing so unintentionally, and uh, we are always uh, going to listen. And uh, if we make a mistake, we will come back and correct it. And not necessarily an issue with pronunciation, but one wrestler who over time has had uh, a couple of different variations on the spelling of his last name, and that is Buddy Landell, mm-hmm. uh, the quote-unquote official Spelling is one L at the end of Landell, but it seems in a lot of places uh, it's spelled with two L's. But uh, as, uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, work with him quite a bit uh, in, in during my career in indie wrestling. I was his uh, chauffeur slash handler slash uh, getting oh, wow. him to the show on time and uh, ready to work. Uh, wow. And I was That's... undefeated in that regard. Uh, he yeah. never missed a show on my watch when I when wow. I took the reins. Um, but almost as impressive as Andre the Giant's undefeated streak, right there. Wow. <laughs> well, that, well, his undefeated streak of, of making towns was probably due to Frank Valoy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, Buddy Landell, uh, the reason we mention him is because uh, earlier this month uh, I released uh, what I call a special project, which was a look at the first. Uh, six plus years of his career, and we tracked him using our spot rating and feud score metrics as he travels from territory to territory as a young up and coming wrestler. And, and you can, you know, when we track these things on the podcast, we're looking at a month at a time, uh, and we're looking at how their weekly spot rating varies over the course of several weeks. But really, there's a lot more value in looking at someone over the course of several years across several different territories. And you can sort of see how they're fit in and plugged into each territory. And as they gain experience, how they move up the cards. And, and we can see that with uh, the Buddy Landell project, which is available on payhip.com, which is a neat platform. It's a PDF document. You can download for free or name your own price. Uh, if you want to download it for free, you have my blessing. No, you know, b- believe me, it's no skin off my back. I want this in as many hands as possible. If you want to throw a, a little money my way, there's a, an option for you to enter in a dollar amount or a penny amount as you wish and uh, pay that amount uh, via PayPal. So it's at payhip.com slash charting the territories. Uh, we're going to have some some other special projects from time to time using that platform. But it, it's just a, a really neat look at Buddy Landell starting as a preliminary wrestler working for PAFO and then uh, for Mid-South, Memphis, Mid-Atlantic, sort of uh, floating back and forth between those three territories. He goes to Southwest as a prelim wrestler. Uh, then he gets his big break. And I didn't know about this, but his first big break, John, was in Puerto Rico. Yeah. Uh, he, I guess, had been working with Tom Ernesto Jr. for Bill Watts, and somehow the connection was made. And Tom Sr. was booking in Puerto Rico, and he called Buddy and said, would you like to dye your hair blonde, come to Puerto Rico and work as a heel? And Buddy said yes, huh. and he got his first uh, push uh, as a heel wrestler. And and from there, it was off to the races. We can track his uh, sort of infamous run in mid-Atlantic where they uh, he has a few matches with Flair over the summer and that they're sort of trying things out and, and, and he moves up the cards. He gets the national heavyweight title and they're ready to run this major angle with Landell versus Flair. And then uh, Buddy does what uh, sadly Buddy was most known for over the course of his career and that was shooting himself in the foot. And I don't want to give away too much about what you have here, but there's a lot of, you know, you mentioned the, the Puerto Rico stuff. There's a, there's quite a bit of information here that I was, I was not 
not familiar with. It's it's this is really really good. I really hope you do do more of these. Every there's so many great parts of this. I love even the intro that you do to this little uh, the Buddy Landell project is great. One of my challenges is, you know, let's be clear. I for for all intents and purposes, I invented a couple of statistics uh, out of out of thin air, uh, and it's very hard to figure out what amount of information I need to give people in order for them to be able to interpret it. Uh, sometimes I feel like I'm not giving enough info and sometimes I feel like I'm giving too much info, but in these written pieces, uh, you know, I allow a couple of pages for an introduction and, and, and I can go into a little more detail about it. When we get to our mailbag later on, we're going to talk more about these statistics and, 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 um, how we should look at them and what we can compare them to. But yeah, it's, it's just a constant challenge of, of figuring out how to introduce people because every, every episode in the podcast, we probably have new listeners. Every time I plug stuff on the blog, we probably have new readers. Every time there's a new project, we get new eyeballs. So I feel like I'm almost reinventing the wheel every time. Now we're going to go back to a time when both John and I were not even apples in the eye of our respective parents, I think. No. Uh, but we're going to go back to 1961. And real quickly, in the first six months of 1961, Leroy McGurk's territory operated in the same geographical region it had been in for uh, many years by this point. Most of Oklahoma, the western half of Arkansas, and the southwestern part of Missouri, with Tulsa being run on Mondays, Little Rock on Tuesdays, and Oklahoma City on Fridays. And this had been the territory, uh, like I said, for many years, dating back to the days of the prior promoter, Sam Avey. Sam Avey uh, grew up in Cherryville, Kansas, working in his family's grocery store. Uh, random morbid fact, one of the local general stores previous to the Avey families was owned by a family, uh, the Benders, also known as the Bloody Benders, a family of serial killers who ran a general store slash inn. The whole, wait, the whole family? The whole family uh, ran a general store slash inn and murdered at least 20 people during an 18-month period in the early 70s. Uh, just another fascinating story to look into. Uh, but Cherryville was not just home to Reconstruction-era serial killers. Uh, the community's most prominent sports celebrity was Billy Sandow. Uh, in addition to being a, a wrestler promoter during World War I, Sandow was a quote-unquote physical culture expert slash self-defense instructor for the U.S. Army. And it's during that time that he meets uh, Ed Strangler Lewis. Before meeting Lewis, Sando had been you know, wrestling, traveling, uh, promoting shows with his brother. But uh, with, so uh, I want, did did he ever introduce Strangler to the to the serial killer family? <laughs> that seems like a perfect fit. I think Strangler could give him some tips. I think they had taken off by then. Yeah, that would have. Been... <laughs> you have to read about this family though. It's like it's like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like they had a a whole table set up where they have guests sit down and a curtain behind the the guest. And one of the brothers would come out with a hammer and boom, hit the person on the head and a trap door would open in the floor and they would fall to the basement where they would later meet their demise. All right. Uh, we are, we are officially canceling the charting the territories podcast and we are going to start the bloody benders podcast <laughs> next month uh, as part of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. Cause this sounds amazing. It's, it's, it's fascinating. I got, I got sidetracked for about three days reading about the, 
<laughs> but anyway, back back to our, our back to Strangler, uh, <laughs> the other Strangler. Uh, with, with when Sandow finds Strangler Lewis, he knows he's found his star, and and, and he begins managing him. And, and in uh, 1922, I think Sandow and Lewis align themselves with with Tutsmont, hiring him initially as a training partner, uh, policeman slash enforcer, and they form what Marcus Griffin later refers to as the Gold Dust Trio. And it's it's really impossible to to overstate the collective influence of those guys on professional wrestling. Like what what Tutsmont described as, you know, his is a slam bang western style wrestling is at its core what we now think of as as pro wrestling. They were the first group of promoters to really utilize finishes in a way that engaged spectators. And they were the first group to have wrestlers work programs and, and feud in a way that we now recognize feuds and building up contenders and stars. Uh, Sandow was the first promoter to have a non-wrestler as a champion, football player Wayne Munn in 1925. But back to our buddy Sam, after serving in World War I, Sandow recruited A.V. into wrestling, one of his functions uh, being a referee for some of Lewis's matches to give Lewis and Sandow an in-ring ally should someone try to double-cross Lewis. And eventually, he's brought in to Tulsa to promote uh, Strangle Lewis's matches. A.V. Uh, being brought to Tulsa uh, had an unintended uh, consequence of giving him a pipeline into some of the best uh, collegiate wrestlers in the U.S. and maybe even the world at this point in time. Uh, A.V. recruited a uh, wrestler from Oklahoma A&M by the name of Leroy McGurk, uh, recruited him into pro wrestling. And after McGurk was forced to retire after an auto accident left him completely blind, and interestingly enough, for most of his adult life, he was, I'm not sure if he was legally blind, but he was at the very least partially blind in one eye uh, from an incident from his childhood, and still went on to become a collegiate star and a multi-time light heavyweight champion in professional wrestling. Um, But a car accident left him blind in both eyes, and so A.V. gave him points in the company and named him Matchmaker, and I do want to give credit where credit is due to uh, Tim Hornbaker's wonderful, fascinating book, National Wrestling Alliance, The Untold Story of the Monopoly that Strangled Pro Wrestling, uh, but uh, had nothing to do with the Bloody Binders, uh, but Strangled Just Pro Wrestling. Um, uh, This is where I got a lot of this info from. Uh, A.V. eventually sold the territory to McGurk and announced his retirement in January of 1958. So... As we get into 1961, McGurk has been the uh, sole proprietor for a few years. Uh, If we look just southeast of Leroy's territory, Louisiana has always been an odd bird up up to this point in time. Uh, In early 1961, some of the towns in the western half of the state are actually aligned uh, with the East Texas booking office while others had been using a small local crew for a couple of years. And this wasn't uh, this wasn't Gulf Coast at this point. I think Gulf Coast had left a few years earlier. So this is just a random assortment of wrestlers. Uh, in May of 1961, they've got regular shows in Monroe, Baton Rouge, and some towns just outside of New Orleans. And they're using wrestlers such as Tony Neapolitan, Jimmy Quinn, Prince Omar and Marco Polo, among others. Shreveport actually hadn't run since uh, McGurk tried running it in 1960, uh, but that only lasted a few months. On May 29th, the newspaper in Monroe has an ad that says wrestling discontinued for three weeks will reopen with better than ever programs. 
on June 16th, an article in the New Orleans Times-Picayune reads, Heavyweight wrestling comes back to the Municipal Auditorium Thursday night, and promoter Joe Gunther said he and associate Leroy McGurk have some dandy attractions coming up with all new faces. So that leads us to the first uh, show in Louisiana with, uh, with McGurk expanding in and this was june 22nd and the main event was danny hodge versus nelson royal uh the next town to open up was shreveport and the building they ran was the municipal auditorium which uh is very well known for having been the home of the famed louisiana hayride country music showcase this was Mm. a radio and later tv program that was instrumental in breaking many new artists including one uh musician that i think a lot of people might have heard of john Oh, yeah, this is on the, uh, Elvis Presley. Uh, on the night, in fact, on the night of Elvis's uh, last Hayride performance, the December 15th, 56, I believe, the crowd was really buzzing and they really wouldn't, nobody would leave. Um, and in order to convince the overexcited fans to calm down and, and let them know that there would be no more encore. No, actually, uh, actually, it's, th- there was, Elvis was on early in the show um, and the crowd wouldn't quiet down so they couldn't bring the next act out. Wow. That's what it was. They, they they purposely put Elvis on early to get him the hell out of there before the show was over because they knew as, as insane as, as it probably was going to be, it was going to be even worse if he was the last act. So, yes. so I'm sorry. I didn't mean to break in, but this is to get the, the fans to calm down so they can introduce the next act. Oh, it's like a WWF card from the 70s. Right, exactly. The event on, yeah. uh, but they, the, the promoter, Horace Logan, uh, comes out and he... And he utters the five words that would later become a staple at the end of Elvis's performances and part of uh, pop culture, even co-opted later by, uh, for the WWF for Shawn Michaels. Those five words, Elvis has left the building. Yes, December 15th, 1956 is the first known utterance of that phrase. Uh, it should be noted that this uh, this particular performance was not at their normal venue, the Municipal Auditorium, but uh, because they were expecting a larger crowd, they moved it to the Fairgrounds Youth Building, which is also known as the Hirsch Memorial Coliseum. So they ran regularly, they ran weekly at the Municipal Auditorium, and for big events, they ran the Fairgrounds Youth Building. And after uh, Elvis left the building, Leroy comes in and they run the municipal auditorium, but they did have at least one big show at that same larger venue, the Hirsch Memorial Coliseum. Uh, McGurk ran that venue in 1968 when Joe Lewis came in to be a guest referee. Um, but on the night of that of Elvis's last performance, they had police officers uh, dressed not as police officers, but wearing Elvis costumes and disguises wow. to distract the the throng of fans waiting outside the venue. Uh, and they, they snuck Elvis in, I guess, around the, a side entrance while fans were distracted by all these random Elvises. It's like the it's like Heather was the um, the second Saddam Hussein. There was always an imposter oh, yeah. going around. <laughs> uh, it's probably the same kind of thing. Oh, wow. Um, but so they open up Shreveport on July 3rd with Nelson Royal facing Jack Curtis Jr. Then they open up Monroe on July 11th with Hodge again versus Nelson Royal plus Darling Dagmar versus Baby Cheryl. The following night, they debuted in Baton Rouge with Danny Hodge teaming with Judy Grable to face Nelson Royal and the fabulous Moolah. So you've got, you know, the the world junior heavyweight champion and the world women's champion uh, in the main event in Baton Rouge. That's that's a pretty big card. And th- this lasted throughout the summer. And this is McGurk 
increasing the number of towns he's run, not replacing. So he's adding at least four shows a week on top of his already regular slate of two shows a night with the occasional spot town as well. So in order to beef up the roster, he's got to bring in several new faces. So he, we see a lot of newcomers in the summer including the fabulous Fargo brothers, who are Don Fargo and Ron Fargo. And in this case, Ron Fargo is Jim Bogus, uh, a.k.a. Jim Dalton. He also brings in the scuffling hillbillies of Chuck Connolly and Rip Collins, uh, out of this world Sputnik Monroe, and not one but two special attractions, Happy Humphrey and the Great Antonio. Uh, both very larger than life, not only in uh, stature and appearance, but in their behind-the-scenes story as well. And one of the interesting things I learned when researching this, John, was that any promoter today that has both Happy Humphrey, who was a 762-pound man, and Great Antonio, who was a giant strong man, today they would build to a match between the two of them. However, in the five or so weeks that both men were in the territory— they were never even on the same card. Yeah. And the whole point, when you think about it, of special attractions is they tend to draw the casual fan, the non-regular fan. Think of fair shows, spot towns, things like that. This is, you know, uh, you know, if you're a kid living in a, in a, you know, in a rural town in Louisiana or Oklahoma and you see a newspaper ad promising you a 762-pound man, you're going to make your parents take you to see that. Yeah. Um, but talking about Happy Humphrey. He had a, a short career that was curtailed due to health issues, which I, I think are going to happen when you're 762 pounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrestled for a few years, maybe more like several uh, in the late 50s and early 60s. In 1960, when he worked the Central States Territory, he was driven around by a young 17-year-old who was just learning the ropes uh, in professional wrestling by the name of Harley Race. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when he came to the McGurk territory, there was a great article about him in the New Orleans newspaper. Humphrey says in 1961, his gross yearly income averages between forty-five and sixty thousand dollars. In today's dollars, that's between four hundred and five hundred thousand. So, take it with a grain of salt. And mm-hmm. speaking of salt, John, how does two pounds of bacon uh, for breakfast sound to you? <laughs> and it sounds delicious. Um, but <laughs> the, that short life you talked about earlier. Yeah. Well, uh, that wasn't even the whole meal. He, oh. um, we, he, the article goes over a normal day's diet for him. He also says it costs $25 a day for him to eat, which is about $200 today. Oh. Um, but breakfast, three dozen eggs, two pounds of bacon, a loaf of bread, a gallon of milk and half a gallon of coffee. Lunch is a gallon of milk and anywhere from 25 to 30 hamburgers or hot dogs. So question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, like 15 hamburgers, 15 hot dogs. Or well, 30... I, I don't know if he was allowed to mix and match or if he oh, had to okay. stick with all hamburgers one day, all hot yeah, dogs the it, next it, day. The, I mean, he seems are... concerned about his diet, so you figure he can maybe alternate between beef and pork. Uh, you know, no. I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, dinner <laughs> was a gallon of milk again, along with an 8 to 10 pound steak with all the trimmings. Ooh. 
<sighs> uh, Happy Humphrey, uh, after his wrestling career, actually went to a clinic for where they put him on a very strict diet. And I was reading about it. It's fascinating. They actually alternated for, I think, two to three weeks at a time between a high-protein diet, a high-fat diet, and a high-carbohydrate diet. And in all cases, calories are severely restricted. Um, due to his large size, there was no exercise um, I, I, I think they said he, at this point, this was years after he had retired from wrestling, but they said he couldn't even walk 10 steps without oh being God. completely, totally worn out. Wow. So it was just isolation and a strict diet. Um, and they were able to a analyze and measure the respective success of each three of those diets as far as, uh, and all of them, he was able to lose a good amount of weight, but they said in particular, the best for uh, having the weight loss come from all or mostly fat as opposed to water weight or muscle loss. The best diet was the high protein diet. Hmm. So uh, if we think about the uh, the various diets that people, myself included, uh, struggle with today, uh, if you are going to restrict yourself to something, apparently high protein is the way to go. But uh, and when he checked out of this clinic, I think it was, I think it was literally a couple of years, he was under 300 pounds. Oh, wow. So he lost over 400 pounds. Sadly, as with any diet, uh, it did not stick. And he slowly, mm. and maybe not slowly, but he gained a lot of the weight back. And it was said he at one point went back up over 600 pounds. Oh, wow. I mean, say what you want. You read the whole diet, each, 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 each of his meals. Yeah. You know what you don't see on that list? Dessert. So, you know, you got to give him that. He had some self-control. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, he had, uh, yeah, he had three jelly beans for dessert. <laughs> that, yeah, that was you know, where he had some common sense. So yeah. that is the story of Happy Humphrey. Um, but he is not the most fascinating of the two special attractions uh, because a guy that unfortunately, John, a lot of fans today only know of due to one particular match very late in his career against Antonio Inoki. But uh, this man has truly one of the most fascinating life stories of, of, any man to ever enter the ring, uh, and, and perhaps even more than that. Uh, but John, talk about the great Antonio. Yeah, I mean, even even his origins are you know clouded in, in mystery. Like over over the years, he's he's given various responses when asked where he was born. Sometimes he would say Serbia. Sometimes he would say Siberia, which may have been a, a language barrier issue. But even even later on in his life, he he claimed to have been born in Italy. Um, the most consistent of his stories is that he was born in 1925 in Zagreb, uh, Yugoslavia, which is about 250 miles from where Nikolai Volkov was born 22 years later. Uh, his early life already sounds like the stuff of, of, of legend, like walking to work with the, with the shovel at six years old, uh, being able to uproot trees with a cable tied around his neck at 12 years old. Uh, and during, during World War II, he ends up in Bagnoli, Italy. Uh, and made his way to Nova Scotia via a refugee ship uh, sometime in 1945. And he was very lucky to get out of Italy when he did, because Bagnoli was one of the location of the uh, World War II displaced persons camps, and stuff got pretty ugly in that area shortly thereafter. Um, so he was very lucky to get out w when he did. Um, so already at the early, early age, he has a life that's it's, it's, it's you know part like Andre the Giant legends. And part, you know, Bruno San Martino escaping the horrors of World War II. 
Uh, by the late 40s, he settled settled in Canada, and uh, according to uh, I think Paul Deschamps' book, uh, Antonio was living in a, living in a scrapyard, sleeping in an old dilapidated bus. Uh, and while living in the junkyard, he realizes he is strong enough to to pull the bus around the scrapyard. Um, and after his dilapidated bus becomes a bit too dilapidated, he constructs like a shack sort of thing for himself out of cement blocks, planks of wood, and the hood of an old car. And he's like a he's a big a big guy, like like six four or so. And at this point in his life, late late forties, early fifties, he's pretty jacked. Like if you look at photos of him, he looks like like a an early weightlifter one of those kind of physiques. Uh, it's really an amazing physical transformation over the course of 10 years or so for Antonio. Like in the mid 40s, he's, he's clean cut, muscular. Uh, and by the early 50s, he's still pretty ripped, but he's got longer hair, a little bit of a beard. But by the 60s, he's put on a lot of weight and he's got the, the big messy beard and long hair. Eventually, he gets to over 450 pounds. But at this point, he's still still really you know pretty well built inspired by the stories of, of local strongman Louis Sear uh, and Victor Delamar, he gets into performing feats of strength. And there's there stories of him getting in the Guinness Book of World Records in the early 50s for pulling a 433-ton train, 65 feet, and again later in, in 1960 for pulling four city buses filled with passengers. He would also perform various feats of strength by pulling vehicles with his hair, of all things. Uh, Quick aside, during while attempting to verify some of Antonio's accomplishments, I stumbled upon some truly disturbing records involving vehicle pulling, like vehicles pulled by eyelids, hooks through the nasal cavity and out of the mouth. Truly disturbing things. It's a, the whole scene with these vehicle pulls. Uh, the, uh, the, you know, uh, remember the Jim Rose uh, Traveling Circus, the freak show from oh. the 90s, Lifto? Oh, yes. Oh, God, I forgot all about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole scene with these guys. Oh. Anyway, he, he he breaks into wrestling in the late 50s in Ontario, which would probably be for Eddie Quinn. Uh, shortly thereafter, starts promoting his own shows where he would put himself over in Battle Royal main events. Um, the earliest results I've been able to find uh, from researching were, oddly enough, were from Texas, working for uh, Morris Siegel in early 59. Mid-61, he goes uh, to Japan, to, and June 2nd of 61, he has a match against Ricky Dozan. Um, last time I checked, there's footage of this match uh, on YouTube. Thank you to Roy Lusher for posting this and thousands of other things on YouTube. Um, and in this footage, it's start before the match. There's like a little ticker tape parade. It's Antonio looking comically large in a tiny car going through this procession. And they show Antonio doing a, uh, a bus pulling thing. And he's got this huge oversized flannel shirt and the beard. And he almost looks like Mick Foley. Uh, you know, he's got a big, big checkered flannel shirt, um, carrying around the chain, pulling the bus. Uh, after the bus, bus, uh, bus pulling, they go to the match where Antonio is, again, led to the ring with a chain around his neck. And he, he just looks huge, like enormous, uh, you know, steps over the top rope, down to the ring. They cut to the crowd and the crowd, you can tell from the looks on their faces that they're just so impressed with this guy and intrigued by him and just in awe of what they see. He looks just in, in terms of like Japanese wrestling in 1961, he looks so unusual and outstanding in a way that should have benefited him the same way, you know, Andre the Giant, Bruiser Brody, uh, you know, Stan Hansen, even, even the Funks benefited from the way they looked. Um, but it doesn't, doesn't really work out that way for Antonio here. Uh, match is only, you know, there's only about 
you know, 40 seconds a minute of the actual match on YouTube. But it's clear during that time that something has gone wrong. Like Antonio's just waving his arms around. Ricky Dozan is looks sort of confused. He doesn't seem scared or threatened. Ricky Dozan, he just seems confused and perturbed. Um, he's able to, to avoid Antonio, just sort of hauls off slapping and kicking at him. Um, you get a quick close-up of Ricky Dozan's face, and he looks he looks pissed off. Like, I, I don't read lips. I do not speak Japanese. So when you see him talking here, you can tell he's legitimately pissed off. It's not like an exaggerated pro wrestling scowl with, you know, with mock clench fists. It's just like an angry bewilderment almost. Um, and as he's like jaw jacking to either Antonio or the ref, Antonio charges again and Ricky Dozan just dumps him out on the floor. And when they're out there, Ricky Dozan just keeps him on all fours, like holds his head with one hand and just like hauls off and kicks him. And then the, he cuts to Ricky Dozan raising his hands in victory. Clip ends. Very quick clips, but it packs a lot of action into it. And it's, it's clear that something was amiss. Um, and, you know, you, you hear, you know, this is the main event at Sumo Hall, you know, sold out 13,000 people against the NWA international champion and the cultural icon, Ricky Dozan, not, not a curtain jerker match. Um, you know, we talked in the previous episode about the super cards. And these sumo, sumo hall cards were not traditional super cards by our definition, but they were special. So these main event matches would usually go, you know, 30, 40 minutes. Um, and that's what the people were used to seeing. So, you know, we, we read some rumors that uh, Antonio had some, some a talking to by some members of a certain Japanese uh, organization later. Cultural in the institution. Yes, as they were unhappy with the match as well. So you'd figure after this, lesson learned for, for Antonio. Um, and in August of 61, Antonio is here in McGurkland. Um, again, mostly working battle royals, handicap matches here, uh, presented in the same way as the happy Humphrey attraction, Antonio as the, the strong man, Humphrey as the world's heaviest wrestler. Even though wrestling results seem more sporadic for him during mid to late 60s, he's continuing doing the strongman stuff. He's on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And there's actually YouTube footage of this you can find that uh, in 1968 with, with uh, other guests, Martha Ray and Jerry Vale. Uh, he's on Ed Sullivan, and uh, he's also a singer. Uh, he's a, he's a, actually has a lovely, soft, sweet singing voice. Uh, at one point, he was angling for a, a tour with Tiny Tim, which would have been a fantastic double bill. Um, in late 77, he leaves for what will be his final tour of Japan. Uh, again, working mostly handicap matches, two-on-one, three-on-one, four-on-one, even five-on-one. Uh, Antonio's over 50 years old uh, in 1977. And it, it, this is not like a Luthez 50 or a Nick Bockwinkle 50. This is a great Antonio 50. It's an Al Getz uh, 50, uh, as I think I'm going to find out next year. <laughs> it's not pretty. I think you're doing that. I think you're, doing, I think you're closer to the Bockwinkle or Thez now. Um, uh <laughs> you know, Antonio here looks like a combination of like late period Abdul the Butcher and Lou Albano. Um, so clearly these are attraction type matches. Again, um, none of them go over 10 minutes. And he's, he's, he's booked for nearly 20 matches while he's on this tour. Only three of them are singles matches and two of them are against Antonio and Noki. Uh, first match goes as planned. Antonio, uh, the great Antonio rather winning by a DQ in the short six five, six minute match, nothing eventful. They meet again a week later back at Sumo Hall. And this one does, does not go well. Um, 
is it safe, safe to I don't feel like I have to do the whole play by play of the entire match. Safe to say everyone who's listening to this has seen this footage already. Um, but, you know, I'm not a, a trained professional wrestler, so I don't want to speculate too much on the, the, the technical aspects of the match. What went wrong where? Uh, but even if you, you know, do not know a, a wrist lock from a wristwatch, you can tell something is off in this match and it, it, it goes bad very quickly. Um, it ends with uh, Inoki just teeing off, kicking him in the face, like close to a dozen times until until he's either unconscious or or close to out. Antonio is just a, a, a bloody mess, and it gets gets really ugly at the end. Um, and it's like you, I've you know I've watched it a bunch of times, and sometimes sometimes I feel like Antonio, you know, Inoki was was patient to an extent, and uh, the great Antonio is just being a crazy maniac. And getting a little unsafe near the end. Sometimes I feel like Inoki went too far too quick. Um, it's but whatever something something happened at some point and the, the 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 switch just flips for Inoki and he just totally went off and that that was uh, Antonio's uh, great Antonio's last match. Uh, and after retiring, his his eccentric shall we say behavior continues like at one point he contacts the the boeing corporation stating that he'll he'll pull a 747 along the tarmac under the condition that the boeing company bestow unto him a jet for his own personal use uh he reaches out to the city of montreal and offers to lift and carry the illuminated steel cross atop mount royal the steel cross is 103 feet tall and weighs 26 tons uh he propositions don king offering to make a quote-unquote fight film for $1 million. Uh, he actually does get some legitimate uh, film and TV roles, appears in a Quest for Fire, a uh, prehistoric epic starring a young Ron Perlman, uh, Ray Don Chong, and Everett McGill, Big Ed from Twin Peaks. Uh, I really wish there had been more prehistoric epics during the 80s. We had you know, this and Clan of the Cave Bear. With and the Ringo Camp. star Barbara, uh, Barbara Bach vehicle, uh, Caveman. Yes. Yeah, oh, that's a good one. Classic. Uh, I think that's where they met, right? Did they meet on the set of that? I believe, I believe that's correct. Interesting. Still together, right? I have no idea. Anyway, I, I really feel that prehistoric, epic, underexplored genre. Uh, anyway, uh, Antonio plays a, a prehistoric tribesman in this in this film, whose members also include giant haystacks and exotic Adrian Street. Uh he appears as himself in uh, the film 20th Century Chocolate Cake, 1983 Canadian movie. Not very good. I guess I, I don't know how I classify it, like a docu-fiction mockumentary type film. Uh, it does an appearance on Real People, the uh, Wednesday night staple in my household in the early 80s. Uh, he's on an episode a little later of, I don't know, even not even going to attempt to pronounce it, basically a French-Canadian version of Candid Camera. Uh, this is also on YouTube, uh, if you want to check it out. It's really funny. Uh, the setup is that people go to use a pay phone in a, in a phone booth, like the old ones at the door, you know, uh, like a Superman would change in. Uh, so they go into the phone booth, close the door, make their call, and Antonio walks over, sets up a chair, and sits down in front of the phone booth, blocking the caller. What a hilarious prank, right? Uh, but what's interesting about this is he's, his popularity is such that the majority of the prankies know who he is. And one of the guys is just knocking on the glass, like very calmly, just like Antonio. Hey, Antonio, come on, let me out. Antonio, let me out. 
It's, it's like the prank sort of goes awry for them. It's very funny. Uh, it's much too, later, it's in too the, famous to be in a hidden yes. camera prank. Yes, exactly. And, and much later in the mid '90s, he's in a, a terrible version of the abominable snowman. Uh, you can probably guess who he plays in this movie. Barely recognizable. And, and yes, I actually paid money on Amazon Prime to watch this for my for my research. Uh, yeah, as evidenced by his appearance on the Canadian Candid Camera, he, he was becoming a local figure of note in Montreal. Very eccentric, I guess, like street person. I don't want to, he's not homeless because he lived, he lived in an apartment. His, his landlady was actually quoted in an article about him saying, you know, he's a nice boy, but every time he sits on the toilet, bang, it breaks. Um, spent a lot of time just hanging out at the local Dunkin' Donuts, local underground metro, you know, station selling pencils and postcards photos of himself that he would autograph and he, he, he was illiterate so he would sign just in these big block letters you know and he had a little pamphlet that he would sell which had you know full of stories from his life and it's just like a sad kind of lonely life almost because a lot of people are sort of frightened of him because he's because of his size and also because he didn't he didn't bathe very regularly you know he grew and he grew these dreadlocks he wrapped them held them together with masking tape on duct tape, like creating clubs out of his hair, which he, he used to play a game called hair golf. Uh, you know, in the, in the early 2000s, they're all taped up with like, it looks like black electrical tape or duct tape. And he, he, he you know, he'd hold them out and they'd, they'd stick just straight out on either side of his head and just drag on the street in the dirt when he, when he walked. Um, it's around this time when he starts claiming to have been either born in Italy as well as being an extraterrestrial. Uh, the story he told was that he, he tried to donate blood and he was turned away because his blood was quote unquote too strong because it was extraterrestrial blood. Um, Antonio sadly died in Canada, 2003 at the age of 77 after suffering a heart attack in a grocery store. He was, uh, broke rumored to have been married twice, once in Europe and once later in Canada. And there, there is a newspaper article, uh, from 1971 that mentions his wife, Janine, includes a photo of her sitting next to him while he sits in his 13-foot-high giant rocking chair. Um, but he had no, no living relatives at the time of his death, no next of kin to be found. Uh, in the obituaries, there's, there's not, a, not a single quote from a family member. It's a quote from someone who looks at the local community outreach center. And it's the same community outreach center that, that paid for his burial. So it is, it is a sad ending. Um, and it's, it's in, the, in the 70s, he seemed to be rel relatively well off financially, making enough money, allegedly, to, to buy a new custom-made Lincoln Continental every, every couple of years. But at the end, it's like all he seemed to have were these two garbage bags, which kept all his various newspaper clippings, magazine articles, photos from career, photos of him with Johnny Carson, Lee Majors, Sophia Loren, Peter Trudeau, a letter from Bill Clinton. Um, the majority of these clippings are now at a museum, the McCord Museum in Montreal, which I assume is a side business for Austin Idol, but I'll have to check that out. Um, after his death, an artist donated a statue of Antonio, but, this, but the city of Montreal refused it as they considered him a social outcast. Um, since then, a, a Canadian indie rock band has dedicated a song to him, and he's had a delightfully illustrated children's book written about him. And finally, in 2015, a plaque and a bench that he would frequent near his apartment was, was dedicated to him. And there's just... There's just so many legends about the guy that it's hard to know 
exactly what is what is what is true and what is not. You know, did he really wear a size 90 suit? Did he really wear a size 28 shoes? You know, Andre allegedly wore 24. So make of that what you will. You know, talking about food, like, you know, did he really eat 25 chickens or 10 steaks in one sitting? You know, did he run a 24 hour endurance race as a 12 year old in order to build his stamina? You know, did he train by running full speed for 200 feet into trees? It's so much of the, the stories and, and so much of the stuff sounds just incredible and insane. Then then you watch documentaries about him and, you know, there's footage of some of this stuff. And there's footage of horses tied to ropes, tied to his arms and people doing a tug of war with ropes tied to his hair with 20 guys on each side. You know, he said he was on Johnny Carson nine times. You know, I wouldn't even believe he was on once, you know, unless I unless I saw it. Um, even if we assume a third of these stories to be true, it's still an extremely impressive and fascinating life. And you're, we're just left wondering so much about this guy, um, you know, as far as the more bizarre aspects of his personality. Where did this come from? Um, you know, some people suspect it was a result of being uh, in prison camp, World War II, something that he, he never, ever, ever spoke of. Maybe this was just how he coped with whatever horrors he had encountered, like a you know, form of PTSD. You know, maybe he was mentally ill. Um, there's such a sadness to his life, especially in the later years, choosing to live how he did out, outdoors for the, for the most part. Um, people point to a change in him after his failed marriage. So maybe all of that cumulatively may have just been too much for him, him, to, him to bear, uh, to, for him to handle. There's a, a, a great quote from, there's a, a, a publisher's review Publishers Weekly review of, of the children's book about his life that reads, uh, quote, what is to be made of lives that don't go the way that they were supposed to? This book proves that they are still worth paying attention to. Uh, and that, that, sums, that sums it up pretty well, uh, I thought. Hmm. Great Antonio. Any thoughts on Great Antonio? He, he left us with more questions than answers, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, he, like I said at the beginning, if all you know was is, is the match with Antonio Inoki, uh, I, there's so much more to his life. Uh, and it's a story that, that deserves to be read. Um, you were talking about him not showering just as a uh, going back to Happy Humphrey. Uh, I believe this was Harley Race's, uh, I don't know if it was in his book or in an interview, but he said Humphrey was too big uh, to fit in most showers. So he would lie down on the floor and, and Harley would pour like liquid soap on him and then use a mop to huh. clean him. Wow. <laughs> Also, Happy claims he was 25 pounds at birth, and by the age of three, he weighed 150. <laughs> so I, I think, yeah, I, I think there's a lot more true embellishing with Humphrey, whereas Antonio's, at the, at the very least, there are partial truths in most of these stories, if not complete truths. Yeah. And then with with, with the, the the happy Humphrey and then Harley with the with the mop, it's like, you know, he talks about being the the, the toughest man on on God's green earth. And like people talk about it of the bar fights and the being, you know, taking care of himself in the ring. That's probably why he's the toughest man on God's green earth. Mopping happy Humphrey. Ugh. Mopping happy Humphrey clean will do that to you. So, yeah, so that's a, that's a look at some of the big attractions. But it's also worth noting that uh, on the cards in Louisiana in the summer of 61 is uh, we see Tony Neapolitan and Jimmy Quinn, who we had seen on the Primagurk shows in the state. Um, so it's reasonable to speculate they're part of the quote unquote office 
in Louisiana. Uh, each of the towns have a different local promoter. We talked about Andy Gunther in New Orleans. Uh, in Baton Rouge, it's Mrs. Jimmy Kilshaw. Um, in Monroe, it's, a, it's eventually a guy named Ralph Fox. Uh, and in Alexandria, when they run when they run that later, it is uh, Sputnik Monroe's ex-wife. So they all have their own local promoter, um, and they're using talent out of the McGurk office. But Neapolitan and Quinn seem to be helping run the shows, and I believe Oni Wiki Wiki at this point in time starts working behind the scenes as well, and he ends up really handling most of the Louisiana towns going, uh, you know, going into the uh, late '60s and early '70s. At the end of September, they add Jackson, Mississippi on Friday nights, and it appears George Curtis, a.k.a. George Culkin, is uh, is the promoter. Uh, but it only lasts just over a month, and in early November, McGurk pulls out of Baton Rouge, New Orleans, and Jackson. He keeps running Shreveport and Monroe, uh, which are in the northern half of the state, and I might have mentioned this on the podcast in the past, but... Uh, the northern half of Louisiana is very different from the southern half of the state, much in the way that upstate New York is a completely different entity than New York City and Long Island and the suburbs. Um, the Cajun country is the southern part of the state, and, and the northern part of the state is uh, less less so. So Monroe and Shreveport are sort of their own animal, and they are basically become weekly fixtures of the territory from 1961 forward. Uh, as for the rest of Louisiana, there's a few scattered shows. A Neop- Tony Neapolitan shows up on them, so he's probably running things. But on December 5th, the New Orleans newspaper announces that, quote-unquote, Madison Square Garden Matt Talent has been signed for the initial card of the all-new programs which get underway Thursday night at the Municipal Auditorium. And the talent is being provided by a man who, in a business full of con men and carny fucks, might be one of the biggest carny fucks of them all. John, let's talk about Jack Pfeffer. Oh, wow, Jack Pfeffer. A few years ago, uh, Tom Burke, historian Tom Burke, was in town. And then whenever he's in town, I try to make a point of having dinner and a few beers with, with Tom Burke. Um, and uh, I think one of the last times he was, he was down here, uh, we were talking about the Jack, the Jack Pfeffer archive, which eventually led to him telling me a few stories about Pfeffer. And he's such a unique personality. And yes, it's very easy to criticize Jack Pfeffer, but it's funny Tom, uh, once talked about having Buddy Rogers on his radio show, uh, years ago, probably 1991, I guess. And, and. And Buddy apparently had only nice, th- nice things to say about Pfeffer, despite you know the Bummy Rogers stuff and exposing him as as Wally Ward. And from what Tom says, quite a few of the guys he had on had nothing but nice say, things to say about Pfeffer. And it, it's interesting when you see documents from the Pfeffer archives, some of the correspondence that he kept well into the 60s after he'd already gained his, his reputation, earned his reputation, I guess, uh, correspondence with guys like Sam Muchnick and Tootsmont and Willie Gilsenberg. Guys who a lot of the time you think he he would be on the outs with and maybe even was publicly, but privately he was still an ally to a lot a lot of these guys, um, which is very interesting. Like we talked about Strangler Lewis earlier, and, and Tom also shared a touching personal story that that Luthez told him about Luthez visiting Lewis in Veterans Hospital near the end of Lewis's life, um, and one of the last times that Thez had gone to visit Lewis in the hospital as he's leaving, he sees. Jack Pfeffer coming down the hallway and they, and they cross paths and Pfeffer nods and says, I've come to see the old man. And Lou, Lou was really touched by this gesture and said that Pfeffer coming and pay respects to his old, his old mentor was 
something that he would never forget because Pfeffer had always stayed close with, with Strangler Lewis all the way to the end where a lot of others had, had turned their backs on him. And Fez always remembered this. But like you said, a very polarizing um, figure. I mean, like when Buddy Rogers on Tom's show in the, in the early 90s said that what wrestling needs now is another Jack Pfeffer. Then you have guys like Eddie Quinn who called him a cancer on, on the wrestling business you know, in a letter to, to Muchnick in like 57 or so. You know, and a guy like Eddie Quinn's feelings about Pfeffer have huge repercussions because he's the promoter who's booking the then NWA champion, um, which leads to a split with promoters recognizing Fez and some some Boston, Omaha, L.A. recognizing Carpentier, who loses the titles in each of those territories, creating new world champions, Kowalski, Boston, Ganya, Omaha, and Blassie in Los Angeles. Um, so it's his, his, his fingerprints are all over wrestling history, uh, either deliberately or inadvertently. Um, I think I think prior to supplying talent here, he had last been in the Northeast, where you, you had you know, Vince McMahon Sr., uh, Tusmont, Cola Quarione, Johnny Doyle, Pedro Martinez, all trying to get a piece of the pie. And, and Pfeffer gets a, gets a big piece of the pie there for a while, the pie being Madison Square Garden. You know, when, Whenever you see the Mighty Zuma, Ricky Starr, or the Fargos, uh, Jackie and Sonny, from you know uh, 59 to the end of 60, that's that's Pfeffer there. Um, I think for a period of like five or six cards, uh, starting in the summer of 1960, McMahon's entire Washington crew of guys like Buddy Rogers, Arnold Scullin, Skull Murphy, aren't on a single Garden show. It's all Pfeffer and Quariani guys, promoted by uh, Walter Johnson, of course. Um, and it's not until McMahon regains control of the Garden in December of 60 where you start seeing those guys come back. And after regaining control in 60, McMahon's would have control for the Garden for forever, or, or until 2019, actually. Yeah, well, um, well, you know, when I call someone a carny fuck, that doesn't, it's a, not necessarily a bad thing. It's just you know, <laughs> a, a factual statement, and it is what it is. Uh, as an example, yeah. we were talking about Buddy Landell and, and how I drove Buddy around, and, and that was usually for shows up in uh, the Northeast for Dennis Coraluzzo. Uh, and Dennis Coraluzzo is, is one of those, you know, characters only in wrestling, all the oh, stories yeah. that have said. But I, I got to tell you, Dennis uh, took care of me. Uh, took care of Buddy, took care of Doug Gilbert for years. Uh, you, you know, he uh, if if he liked you, if you treated him with respect, he he would you know go all all out for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, as you know, pop, pop, on a lesser scale than Pfeffer, Dennis has those same stories that people there are people that hate him uh, that think he was bad for the business, and there are people that absolutely love him that he stayed in touch with you know uh, years after the fact. Yeah. Um, it's it's just all it's all about positioning. Yeah, and Pfeffer, you know, his his role, and this is something that sort of gets overlooked, I I, I think, is like his role in in Bruno's ascension, is is, is really I feel gets overlooked a, a lot, sadly, because it was, it was Pfeffer and Pedro Martinez that gave Bruno his first real push and made him a star at MSG. They gave him the big Haystacks Calhoun match in the summer of 1960. They're the ones that had him wrestling Rocca, and he didn't really get a big push, Bruno, from McMahon, you know, in Capital Wrestling until early '63, right before winning winning the title. Um, you know, so it's like, like you said, yeah, like Pfeffer, his, his fingerprints are all over 
everything wrestling history yeah, yeah. whether yeah it's it's he's a, a, just a fascinating interesting interesting figure and i hope to someday go to the go to the go to the archive and, and dig in oh yeah that would I, I could spend weeks there um but and yeah. and you know a lesser part of his history is this uh what i believe is a brief foray into louisiana but the first card featured chief lone eagle versus tony neapolitan in the main event plus lady blimp versus lady red devil so this is the madison square garden matt talent mind you um, <laughs> Um, and it wouldn't be a Pfeffer card without some sound-alike ripoffs. We've got Maurice Carpentier, Armand Rocca, Nick the Bruiser, Nick with an N. And this one's my favorite because it, it's really clever. Uh, instead of Cowboy Bob Ellis, we have Bob Bellis. Oh, so hmm. if you say it fast enough, it sounds, you know, it's same guy. Like Bob Ellis. Yeah. So uh, the same crew works December 12th in Alexandria. And then the following week in New Orleans, uh, Wildman Fargo, Jackie Fargo comes in. Also, Young Carnera, who is billed as the nephew of Primo Carnera, who a quick Google search on my end uh, yielded uh, does not exist. Uh, <laughs> Primo did not have a nephew that was a wrestler. Shock, surprise. Crazy. Um, but now, as, as far as McGurk's territory, now that he's no longer uh, running all of the Louisiana towns and, and just has Shreveport and Monroe, he does scale back the crew as we go into the fourth quarter of 1961. And if we go to uh, if you go to our blog, chartingtheterritories.com, you can look at the spot ratings uh, to see who are on the top of the cards and, and, and how the rest of the roster fills out in the fourth quarter of 1961. But your main eventers are on the babyface side, we've got Danny Hodge and Mike Clancy. Uh, Hodge is the, at the time, is the current uh, World Junior Heavyweight Champion. Clancy was a former champion. He actually lost the belt to Savoldi, uh, and then Savoldi held it for a few years before losing it to Hodge. Uh, on the heel side, we have Sputnik Monroe, the great Bolo, Al Lovelock, the mighty Bolo, which here is, this time is Pepper Martin, and Waldo Von Erich. And, and Sputnik and Mighty finish up in October, and, and Waldo debuts around the same time. So uh, there's two main event baby faces, and there's, at any given time, there's two to three main event heels. And this is something we see a lot with the Sputnik ratings, John, is that there are usually slightly more top-level heels than baby faces, mm. which from a booking standpoint makes sense. The idea is that the, the baby faces are outnumbered, uh, so to speak. Or think about the WWF, where Bruno always has a rotating cast of yep. three or four monster heels at any given time that are positioned as threats to him. So we, we see that a lot where there's slightly more heels in the main event spots and the baby faces. And then oftentimes uh, to balance out the sides, you have more preliminary baby faces than heel baby faces. And this leads to, uh, you know, opening matches of the scientific, you know, baby versus baby uh, warm up match. So that, so that's how things are, are sort of evened out. Um, but yeah, so that's a look at the top of the cards and, and, and John, if you can run down some of the interesting faces that show up in the uh, upper mid, Upper mid cards of the territory. Yeah, the, on the upper mid card, on um, the babyface side, we've got Tiny Smith, uh, Red McKinn. Of course, I'm the president of the Red McKinn fan club, uh, Torbellino Blanco. You keep increasing your, your role in this uh, alleged organization every podcast. I well, think you were a card-carrying member at first, and now you're apparently the president. I don't know what's next, but I think by the end of, by the end of next year, John is going to claim he actually is Red McKinn. Red McKinn. I am the fire department chief. Uh, 
Uh, <laughs> I Sorry. forget the town he was at. Tulsa? Is it Tulsa? Yeah, Tulsa. Tulsa Fire Department. Tulsa. I, I will be the Fire Department Chief of Tulsa by next summer. Uh, Torbellino Blanco, Oni Wiki Wiki. And on the heel side, we've got Carol Krauser, the Russian Angel, Tony Angelo, uh, the Mighty Yankees, Roger McKay and Herbert Knotts, a.k.a. Buddy Knotts. Uh, Tony Angelo, I, I, I'm very interested in him because he was a, a little manager run in the WWE. WF, he was sort of like a godfather type character with like the, he had the suit, the hat, the briefcase, the cigar, any of those three wise men, pre three wise men era managers of the WWF are always fascinating to me. Yeah, and he doesn't work for a long time as the Russian angel, but he's, he's definitely got the look for it. And he's also sometimes he's billed as Mr. K. The Russian Angel, which mm-hmm. is interesting. But um, uh, so those are the spot ratings. Look at the feud scores. We have a major feud uh, between Mike Clancy and Sputnik Monroe. And this is really interesting because as I'm doing my research, a lot of the newspaper articles, uh, when they promote a uh, the first round, the first bouts between Clancy and Sputnik in each town, it's presented as Clancy being a stepping stone uh, for Sputnik to get a shot at Danny Hodge. Um, and my you know, uh, overarching theory uh, for a lot of the territories, a lot of the times, is that feuds are not necessarily set up by TV angles and, and the TV tapings dictate the length of the feud, but it's the each town might have its own sort of thread uh, with the different feuds, and it's based on how well it draws. And this we know, going back to the Bruno's Heel of the Month, that was the biggest factor in deciding whether uh, his Heel of the Month uh, got one shot, two shots, or three shots. And it was often different in every arena. Uh, so the theory being, if it draws well, they're going to run a disputed finish to build up to a rematch. If it doesn't draw well, the Bruno will go over clean. And if there's three to four monster heels in the territory at any time, another one is almost always uh, on the undercard of Bruno's title defenses, winning a match against a mid-card babyface. So that if they do blow off the main event program, they can slip that guy in and announce him getting a shot next month. So there's anecdotal evidence that Clancy uh, was supposed to lose to Sputnik but that they and, and be a stepping stone to Hodge, but they drew so well in some of these towns that they keep coming back with it. Um, Sputnik ends up only staying through October or so. He does end up getting matches with Hodge in some towns, but, uh, in some towns, it's still Clancy is the guy that gets the big victory over him to, to finish him up. Um, so that's a perhaps window into, uh, booking philosophy and strategy and, and that sometimes the plan to use Clancy as a stepping stone to Sputnik didn't work because the Clancy-Sputnik feud connected uh, and drew well. Uh, But then we see Clancy get into a feud with Waldo Von Erich in November and early December. Uh, And then we have a what they call a Battle of the Bullies, which is the old Mm. heel versus heel feud. Uh, Mid-Atlantic was really known for this, uh, particularly in their their tag team era uh, that they had so many built up heel tag teams. And as we mentioned, there's usually one more heel tag team uh, on the main event level than there are babyface tag teams. So sometimes because of this imbalance, you, you almost have to go with a heel versus his heel. Uh, so we have Waldo feuding with the great Bolo and these built to loser leave town matches, which are actually won by Waldo. And in some towns, one an additional stipulation was that Bolo must wrestle without his mask. And I will oh. say this, having seen Al Lovelock, pictures of Al Lovelock without the mask, why this man wore a mask, I will never know. 
He's a, he's a good looking man. I'm not sure how old he is in 1961. Perhaps he, uh, perhaps he had the, uh, a growth, uh, he aged, uh, slightly better than the great Antonio and perhaps <laughs> felt the need to wear a mask later on in life. But, uh, another wrestler who is here for a few weeks is probably best known, John, not for his work in the ring, but what he brought with him. And that is, uh, Tuffy Truesdale. Oh, Tuffy. Tuffy, Tuffy, Tuffy. Tuffy, Tuffy was born in 1917. Born, first name, real first name, Adolf. Uh, Tuffy got his start in 1936, which is a, a, a great year to adopt a pseudonym, if your name is Adolf, by the way. Hmm. Uh, not a big guy. Uh, build weight of around 160 pounds, probably 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, five, not, a, not a big guy. Uh, not a big guy even by normal standards, let alone wrestling standards. Um, you'll occasionally see... Tuffy, nicknamed the Arkansas Traveler on some cards, uh, occasionally billed as the world middleweight champion for a year or so. Later on, he's also billed as being from Mexico, as well as being a, a claimant to the Mexican heavyweight championship. Uh, in March of 1947, sort of a, a turning point in Tuffy's career, or even in his life even, uh, as, as he appears on a card in Waco, Texas, with a guy named Gil Woodworth. Um, you know, sometimes you see his name as Woodward, like the Watergate reporter. Uh, sometimes you'll see it spelled that way on, on, on cards. Now, old Gil here is not a professional wrestler. He's what they would call the alligator man. Um, you're not going to see him wrestling uh, against Red McKim or Jerry London or anybody. He's, he's mostly just doing his alligator wrestling on the alligator farm or at State Fair or whatever. But he does pop up on a few proper wrestling cards around this time as a special attraction. Uh, later that month, you know, Tuffy taking note of this, we find the first occurrence of, of Tuffy wrestling an alligator later, later this month in Denver. Uh, quick aside, earlier in this year, January of 47, Gil and his alligator uh, were attractions on a Nashville card for Nick Goulas. And this is, this is sort of notable because Al Saz is on this Nashville card and his wife, Ada Ash, would later become an attraction as an alligator and bear wrestler. I thought that was very interesting. Uh, in his book, Brent Blassie talks about being on a, a carnival show in Missouri with, with Tuffy, where Tuffy scheduled to wrestle for an alligator, but sadly, the alligator died before the match. Uh, but Tuffy, you know, wanting to give people their money's worth, climbs into the tank, works a match with the dead alligator, uh, convincing enough where the crowd bought it. Um, after the carnival's over, Tuffy just dumps the alligator into the Merrimack River. Uh, next morning in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, there's a, the headline, Alligator Found in Local River, where the reporter surmised that the alligator somehow made its way up to the Midwest from the, from the Everglades. Um, and around 1955, Tuffy and, and his wife took all the gators, all their gators, and opened, I don't even know what you'd really call it, part zoo, part amusement park. Uh, they, had, they had the gators, they had monkeys, they had that, the lion and go-kart races like this whole this whole setup um but prior to that they would just take the alligator on the road and when they get home you know how, how the, the hart family had terrible ted lived under the porch or whatever um you would figure that they're that they have some sort of reptile enclosure in the truesdale yard uh and but that was not the case wrong the the alligator lived in a tank that truffy kept under the bed uh, Tuffy's wife was interviewed years ago and she mentioned not wanting to get the alligator 
wanting wanting to get the alligator out of the house rather because Tuffy was having nightmares about it and he'd wake up in a cold sweat just hearing the alligator sloshing around uh, just sounds absolutely horrifying. Uh, when you're looking at results for Tuffy and his alligator, I found alligators named Albert, Rodney, Rodney 2, Rodney 3, all the way up to Rodney 8. And alligators normally have a lifespan of 30 to 50 years. So you really want to hope that ma- the majority of the Rodneys were retired or and released into the wild or, or perhaps introduced into some sort of reptile sanctuary. But after the Blassie story, it's who, who knows what happened to, to all, I, all the know. Rodneys. Yeah, I would have weekended Bernie's that thing for as long as I could. I don't know if you've been watching baseball. A lot of the teams have fan cutouts. And I think in uh, Los Angeles or Anaheim, I think one of the cutouts is of Bernie from Weekend at Bernie's. Uh, as, as the story goes, this is like late 50s, maybe early 1960. Uh, Tuffy had mentioned to some of his hunter friends in Canada that he was, he was looking for a bear to introduce into his act. As, uh, a, sometime later, the hunters tell Tuffy that they uh, – they had shot a bear that was disturbing their camp. So Tuffy tracks the bear back to her den and found her dead. Uh, next, next, to, next to her is what, what Tuffy assumes is her brother, who Tuffy, quote-unquote, adopted. And that's, that's the bear that would later become known as Victor, one of the, the most famous of all the, the wrestling bears. So it's, it's, it, it is in 1961, actually, where we see the first appearance of Victor. So this is his, this is his rookie year. Here. Yeah, and it's, and we and here he brought both the alligator and the bear with him. What's yeah, interesting is for I think the first week or so he's only wrestling the alligator, um, I, and I would imagine the bear has to be present as well. Um, but it's not till like the second or third week that the bear starts making appearances. And of course, the bear is generally in battle royals. Uh, with the whole idea is just everybody run from the bear and until he catches you, and then you know you uh, let him fake maul you as long as you can, and then throw yourself over the ropes and get the hell out of there. I'd imagine the bear be in the back playing cribbage with Arnold Skolin or somebody. <laughs> um, uh, maybe Happy Humphrey gets him to you know take the mop to him to clean him up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like like you said, occasionally you see the bear and the alligator on the same card, sometimes not. Uh, usually Tuff, Tuffy is only the, the only guy who usually wrestles the alligator. Uh, the bear will occasionally be someone else or in a battle royal handicap match. My, my favorite one, I don't know if it's during this run that you see this, but my favorite bear stipulation match is a match where the loser must wrestle the bear. I love that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they, I think they do that a couple of times. It's usually the bear is in the battle Royal. Um, but yeah, sometimes they'll do a battle Royal with just the, the, you know, the human wrestlers and the first man out, uh, will have to come back and wrestle the bear. Also a great stipulation. In the, in the mid sixties, Tuffy, Tuffy gives up alligator wrestling after receiving a particularly nasty hand injury during a match with one of the, one of the Rodneys. And he's more or less retired from professional wrestling altogether by 1968, transitioning into becoming Victor's handler. Uh, Tuffy would also just have Victor do random take on all comers type matches with civilians. Uh, random, one of my favorite Victor stories is from a reporter who was writing an article about Victor and Tuffy for the Smoky Mountain Times. And the reporter is getting ready, ready to actually wrestle the bear. He takes off his sweatshirt, whatever. And underneath, he's wearing a T-shirt with a picture of Superman on the back and Superman spelled out in the front. And Tuffy comes over and like, with his arm around him and whispers, you know, the bear can wrestle, but the bear can't read, which I thought was a hilarious, hilarious story. Um, yeah, and dur- during the 70s, like Tuffy and Victor, Ron Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas show a couple times, Carson Sullivan from game show, like, let's make a deal and to tell the truth. I'll take, uh, Victor, in the, Vic- I'll take Victor in the center square, please. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, Victor dies of a heart attack in 1977. Uh, but Tuffy introduces Victor too, uh, who attacks. Electric Boogaloo. 
<laughs> yeah. He attacks a couple opponents in 1981, after which they stop having Victor wrestle because of lawsuits and protests from animal rights groups. Uh, Tuffy died in, in 2001 at the age of 84. And guess what's on his tombstone, Al? What? A bear. Okay. So it okay. seems like he he held a grudge on a grudge with uh, with Rodney for a while. Apparently. So he's definitely Victor's definitely. People talk about Mount Rushmore's of wrestling. You know, they, but they really don't talk about a bear of Mount Rushmore. So you got to figure Victor, got to have Victor, Terrible Ted, yeah, Ginger, Ginger, and you know, Gorgeous Gus, Doctor Jerry Graham's old bear, and, and, pa- and Pampero, and Pampero Firpo. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, but so, looking at the territory as as the uh, Louisiana expansion becomes a Louisiana contraction, the the weekly loop that we know of uh, Mondays was Tulsa and Shreveport. Tuesdays is Little Rock and Monroe, and it should be made very clear that Shreveport and Monroe are definitely, uh, quote-unquote, B-towns at this point in time. Uh, Both of them, and in particular Shreveport, become uh, much bigger towns in later years, but at this point, the the Tulsa and Little Rock lineups are considerably stronger than the ones in Shreveport and Monroe. Wednesdays is Fort Smith, Arkansas, and Springfield, Missouri. Thursdays is Wichita Falls, Texas, and Fridays is Oklahoma City. There were certainly other towns run on Thursdays and Fridays, and and there's strong evidence of a third show being run on many of these weeknights as well. Uh, There are enough wrestlers not used on uh, particularly on Wednesdays uh, that there almost has to have been another show, and it, it... it doesn't seem to be in any of the larger cities in the geographical bounds of the territory. So it's just uh, different spot towns every week. Um, Saturdays, they ran live TV in Oklahoma City on Saturday nights and uh, probably a spot show or two. And Sundays are an off day. Um, at this point in time in the South, there are blue laws. Uh, businesses uh, don't operate on Sundays. Uh, it's really not until the mid-60s that we see anything in this territory uh, on the Sunday, aside from the occasional fair show or, or some type of special deal. But it's not until the mid-60s when the assassins come in and get super hot and draw really well that McGurk starts running some of his towns on Sundays. Uh, we talked about, for example, Mondays are usually Shreveport and Tulsa. What he would do when the assassins were hot would run Shreveport on Sunday and Tulsa on Monday uh, so that he could have the assassins in both of those towns. And then the following week, I think he takes Monroe and moves it to Sunday and Little Rock on Tuesday so that the assassins can work both of those towns as well. Uh, So there, but for the most part, there's no shows on Sundays in the South until the mid 60s. Uh, If you go to the blog, not only can you see the full spot ratings and feud scores, but we also list uh, full advertised lineups for all of the known house shows I have for the territory. And in the fourth quarter of 1961, I've got 124 house shows. So for a 13-week period, so that's an average of nine and a half a week. Um, And it's not complete. It's probably about two-thirds of all shows. So you get a pretty good idea of, of what the lineups are night in and night out. Uh, and that is 1961 in a nutshell, or, or perhaps uh, a larger size shell, I guess, because we had to contain uh, Happy Humphrey and Great Antonio and uh, the wrestling bear and the alligator and all sorts of interesting creatures. I do want to get to our mailbag because it is overflowing Ooh. with uh, two pieces of mail. Yeah, well, this is uh, like 
aside from all the nasty comments I got about how I don't know how to pronounce Homa and what kind of a schmuck am I, um, <laughs> I we did get two questions that I wanted to discuss. Uh, the first is from Twitter user at JLR Pro. Uh, he says, love the show. My question, whenever we look at advanced metrics, especially in baseball, there always seems to be a few guys the numbers don't like. Is there a name or two you thought would do better in your two metrics? Conversely, is there someone you were surprised by that the numbers really liked? And to answer this question, I need to be very clear. The spot rating is in no way, shape or form an advanced metric. It is a very basic, very simple uh, calculation. Uh, I compare it to batting average. Uh, the thing about batting average in baseball, it's very easy to understand, very easy to scale, very easy to calculate, and very easy to interpret. For one number, it gives a lot of information, but there's still so much more you can learn about a player by looking at more advanced metrics. But as far as a, for something basic and simple, it's really good at giving you a good amount of information with just one number. And that's how I view the spot rating. Um, the other thing to, to consider about the spot rating, it doesn't measure anything the wrestler actually does. When you think about it, it's not, you know, we're not examining their work rate or their style or uh, anything to do with their drawing power. Um, what we're doing is we're uh, analyzing what the promoters or bookers, uh, where they place each wrestler on the card, which in theory is largely based on a wrestler's performance, but there are often other factors at play. And if we really want to compare it to a data point in baseball, I actually thought about this after I got this question. The best real comparison would be batting order, John. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and you can't, you couldn't take an average of batting order because of the way a lineup is. But if you did like a frequency chart of how many mm -hmm. times Derek Jeter batted first, second, third, fourth, fifth, so on, so forth, that gives the same information as the spot rating because it's something uh, a manager chooses for the, each player, and it's in theory based on a player's performance, but different spots are, are assigned for different reasons. It's also based on how the overall team is and what the manager's preference for batting order is, and and uh, it can differ from league to league. For example, a number seven hitter in the American League might very well be a number five hitter in the National League, yeah. uh, at least uh, or until before this year when they uh, added the DH rule for the National League. Also, there are times, you know, when the, you know, someone who bats, you know, seventh uh, or eighth on the Yankees might find themselves batting third on on a normal team that doesn't have a loaded, you know, <laughs> roster. Um, yeah. But also, uh, someone I'd mentioned Jeter, someone like Jeter, who on, who in on many teams you could in theory be third, fourth, or fifth. I think with the Yankees, we see him bat earlier in the lineup a lot more because they had so many sluggers to come after him and they didn't have a whole lot of speedsters. Uh, they didn't have those uh, guys who were who specialized in drawing walks and stealing bases. So Jeter finds himself at the top of the lineup more often on that team. Whereas if he was on a different team or like in a spot writing a wrestler, you know, um, so th that's really a better comparison. And and the other thing to consider with spot rating is we don't have full data. So any numbers we come up with, we're, we're missing about a third of the info. The sample size is generally large enough that, that the range uh, is, is accurate. When we look at 
uh, wrestlers that the numbers favor, what we find is um, favoritism. Uh, happens a lot or, or nepotism um when we when the culkins start promoting uh regularly in mississippi we find jack curtis jr positioned very strongly on those shows for obvious reasons because he is the uh brother of george culkin um we see many times where a booker brings in his trusted allies and friends and gives them good spots on the cards. A good example of this would be in 1975 in Florida when Harley Race gets the book, Roger Kirby, and, and again, not a knock on Roger, but he is he is positioned higher up on the cards than he probably should be given how stacked the Florida roster is in 1975. But it's an example of Harley taking care of his friend and also trusting his friend. So that's really what we see. Uh, and talking about Louisiana, if Grizzly Smith is in charge of the Louisiana towns, if there's somebody he likes that might be a prelim guy or a mid-card guy in the rest of the territory, Grizzly may very well feature him uh, more prominently in Baton Rouge and Laranger and Homa. Um, we see this with Johnny Eagles, but also Terry Lathan, uh, as an example of that at various times. And also Bob Boyer gets that treatment as well. So that's sort of what we see when a, a the spot rating doesn't quite make sense. I can usually figure out why, because like I said, there are other factors at play besides how good they are in the ring. And just like a, a baseball player who is slumping or streaking might find themselves temporarily knocked out of their normal batting spot and move to a better spot or to a worse spot, or when players change teams or in baseball, uh, depending on the handedness of the pitcher, uh, can also affect the lineup. The same thing can happen here. Different towns, uh, the promoters and bookers know uh, that things that work in one town might not work in the other. And as such, certain wrestlers might be featured more prominently in some towns than others. Um, so that was a very long explanation. Uh, second question, uh, Brenton, Twitter user, at who dat man. 504, uh, which I think means uh, that Brenton is from New Orleans. Uh, we've got a Houdat reference and a 504, which is the area code for I the am. New Orleans area. Um, but he asks, is there a city you don't have as much data on as you'd hoped, like results or attendance numbers? Um, and my honest answer is I want them all. Uh, the small <laughs> spot towns run once a year, to me, are as important uh, as New Orleans, Tulsa, Little Rock, so on and so forth. But as far as most historians, the major gaps in this territory are uh, – after 82, Oklahoma City and Little Rock, uh, they they stop running newspaper ads and they don't seem to have the results in the newspaper either. Tulsa mm. is spotty. Sometimes they list the results after the fact. Sometimes they list the lineup ahead of time. But there's also a major gap for this territory, and that is New Orleans in the Mid-South era. Um, there are, uh, there are often articles to build up the Superdome cards, but, uh, once they move to the municipal auditorium as their regular venue, there is very little information. Now, a few of these sites online and a few of the books do have some results from New Orleans, and those were, uh, sort of hodgepodge together from old TV shows that people had where they ran down the house show lineups on the TV 
with the local house show promos. Mm. So those were used to sort of paste together uh, the lineups and results, but we're missing a good chunk of New Orleans. And why that's important to a lot of people is because of the Junkyard Dog, who is yeah. one of the more polarizing uh, Hall of Fame candidates that's not in the Hall of Fame. Um, and really what people want to know is to what extent did he truly increase attendance in New Orleans? Um, of course, to me, I would want to know the, the territory as a whole as well. But yeah. is there evidence that Junkyard Dog, you know, was it 10%? 20%, 50%, what was the business increase uh, when Junkyard Dog was hot and when he was in the main event? And and can we see on times when he is not booked on the show, whether they're doing an injury angle or if he's working another town the same night, is there a discernible decrease in attendance when Junkyard Dog is not on the card versus the week before and the week after when he is on the card? And I think there's there's people just want to know the number. Uh, whether it will change anyone's minds or not, I don't know, but there's probably some number, uh, where we could say, if we could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that JYD was, was responsible for an X percent increase in attendance or calculate, you know, what that comes out to in dollars, uh, over the course of a year, there's probably some number somewhere that, that, that would convince some of those, uh, people on the fence about voting him in to change their minds. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but overall, um, attendance figures of some towns without all of the towns isn't something I, I'm excited about. I, I would want to have all of them, uh, because that's where I can do, uh, a lot of interesting work. Whereas if we just have it for some towns, some of the time, it's interesting, but it's not very insightful. Can you, when, looking at the territorial era, can you uh, take a, a given wrestler's spot rating from territory to territory or year by year and generate, you know, a career spot rating? Yes. Or is that? Uh, you can. You would probably, uh, depending on which territories they worked, if, if some of the territories have a larger, uh, you know, have more data, you know, have more records that we have our, our hands on than others, you would probably need to normalize it in some fashion. Um, uh, but that, to some extent, is what I did with uh, the Buddy Landell project that is available uh, on payhip.com slash charting the territories. And it's available to download for free or name your own price. But we look at his um, his week-to-week spot rating in each territory, but then uh, at the end of his run in each territory, we can actually calculate the overall spot rating based on his uh, all of his bookings uh, for that however many months-long run it was. Um, and you can do it over the course of a career. You can also sort of form what I call a career arc. Um, most you know wrestlers start lower on the cards. And as they gain more experience, they gradually move up. And so you could sort of take that and probably, and many of them towards the end of their career has continued to be used in a lesser role. Uh, and they're in preliminary matches, but they're also um, helping the rookies that are in the preliminary matches. Uh, they're helping them learn the ropes and uh, also evaluating them. So they're serving a very important purpose. But yeah, you can see uh, it's almost like a curve. They sort of start out lower on the cards, uh, move up and, and reach a certain peak and then uh, often, you know, move down the cards or, or, you know, move slightly down or or stay as main eventers uh, 
through the rest of their careers, like a Bruno or a Hogan or a what have you, or a Stone Cold. Um, you know, and, and you also then can look at, uh, you know, sort of things that don't look right. And, and when you look at the different territories, if he's working in both large and small territories, sometimes the curve isn't quite a curve. Um, someone who might be a mid-carder in Georgia or Florida might be an upper mid-carder or main eventer in Portland or mm-hmm. Southeastern or, you know, or a smaller territory. Yeah. So uh, there's got to be a way to sort of uh, normalize a curve and come up with a career arc for a wrestler. And for Buddy Landell, we do it for the first six plus years of his career, starting in 1979 and going to his main event run in Memphis, where he's uh, first teaming with Bill Dundee and then feuding with Bill Dundee. Um, and, and they have a rapport. I think they end up uh, also working together in Mid-Atlantic after that. Um, and they were a, a lot of fun as a as a team uh, and probably a lot of fun as a feud as well. And my last question now. Yeah. Hypothetically, if one wanted to chart a territory on their own, could they? How would they do this? And is your system a proprietary system? Um, right now, I in some of my work in the past, I've actually given out the formula. Uh, like I said, it's not rocket science um, to calculate uh, the spot rating for a a you know one wrestling card. Um, sometimes there's a little bit of art to it in addition to science, but and uh, but the real interesting part is is when I calculate these weekly spot ratings because as I've mentioned, I use a rolling weighted five week period. Um, but uh, anyone with some Excel skills, uh, I can teach it. As a matter of fact, I am attempting to do that right now with someone. Uh, man by the name of Timothy Johnson has been doing a lot of research into Baltimore, uh, wrestling in Baltimore in the uh, mid-1950s. And he actually calculated spot ratings for a six-month period for mm-hmm. uh, some of the wrestlers. So I've been talking to him and uh, we are discussing moving forward and seeing if he can uh, now uh, do it uh, the way I do it with my weekly with my weekly spot ratings and and see how teachable it is for someone with uh, average Excel skills, which is what he told me he had. Am I able to teach people uh, and or am I able to? pre-format uh, and program spreadsheets in such a way that anyone can plug these numbers in and do huh. it. Wow. As another way of getting the word out about our podcast, we've been making appearances on some other podcasts that are part of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. I was a part of the 605 Super Podcast Opening Day Star Wars, where we talked about baseball, wrestling, and life alongside several other luminaries, including John McAdam of the Sick to Wrestling podcast. And John, speaking of John McAdam, you uh, appeared on an episode of, of his podcast recently. Two episodes. Two episodes. Two episodes. <laughs> Episodes 111 and 112 of Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam, uh, where we discussed the very first issue of the Wrestling Observer, which has the 1982 uh, year-end award results. Uh, so give those a listen if that sounds like fun to you. If that sounds like fun to you, yeah. And I also, um, at the time that you and I are recording this podcast, I have recorded an episode uh, of the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast podcast. 
Uh, and, and I believe that by the time this podcast is out, that that podcast will also be out. Um, but if it's not, it should be out any day now. That's the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast. And uh, I talked with Mike about George Scott's run as Booker for McGurk in early 1982 in the dying days of Leroy's standalone tri-state wrestling territory. Um, so you can give that a listen. That's the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast. And also check out our Buddy Landell project at payhip.com slash charting the territories. Um, and in September, I'm going to release another special project that you and I will talk about next month on the podcast. Um, and we answered the, we cleared out the mailbag this month. So we need to fill it up with some new questions. So if you've got any questions, you can reach me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. That's Al G E T Z Wrestling. And John? I am at John underscore Boucher. That's J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. And going back to pronunciations, uh, <laughs> it is John Boucher and not John Butcher. Boucher. Boucher, Boucher. Yes, or Boucher. I've, so, I've, I've, so. I've gotten them all. I've gotten them all. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, we'd love to hear from listeners. Uh, thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next month to be the first to know when new episodes of the Charting the Territories podcast are available. Subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingthepodcast.com. And as always, Charting the Territories is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. John, so great talking to you and learning all about the great Antonio and Jack Pfeffer and uh, the Gold Dust Trio and Tuffy Truesdale and so much more. And John, take care and we will talk to you next month. See you in September.